achieving exceptional performance, shared insights. Welcome to All Things Intriguing with your host, Dr. Raymond L. Newkirk. That's me, that's yours truly. We're discussing achieving exceptional performance and we're on episode 13, qualifying the critical success factors of good enough solution. What's the good enough solution? How do you qualify that? How do you know when it's good enough? You know, notice I say, we say, I'm saying shared insights. I'm not giving you advice. I'm not telling you to follow me. I'm telling you, these are things that I've learned that I'm sharing with you. My insights may be beneficial. You can improve upon them, I hope. This gives you a foundation to do even better. Did you know that companies spend more money on problem solving than they do on the cost of operations? Think about that. The cost of operations of a major corporation can be billions of dollars. Yet they spend more money on problem solving. This is a, this is a problem, isn't it? Just problem solving so expensively is a problem. One of the problems, of course, is that many problems repeat themselves. Organizations face these one day at a time. They never quite resolve these pesky problems that become so expensive year after year after year. Can you imagine your boss? Your supervisor, your manager saying, I thought we solved that last year. And they say, no boss, we solved it five years ago, but it's back. There are, there are unbelievably creative solutions that cost a lot. We know that. Creativity, innovation is expensive. There's no free lunch, right? There are also good enough solutions that cost much less, but actually solve the problem good enough to meet requirements. So what makes sense to you? This is an easy question. What's in your wallet, right? <laughs> like that commercial. How much can you afford? Hello, thanks for listening. Welcome to my podcast. It will be far ranging, challenging, surprising, insightful, informative, interesting, far reaching, and even intriguing. This is brought to you by Systems Management Institute in Orlando, Florida. Check us out at www.smirsp.com. Your visit is more than welcome. Too often, we give our children answers to remember rather than problems to solve. Roger Lewin said that. So think about it. Too often we give our children answers to remember rather than problems to be solved. Solutions. The world is about solutions. Everywhere you go, people are trying to solve problems. You know it in your own life. You know it with your friends, your relatives. You know it at work. How do you do this? How do you do that? What's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? Problem solving. It's one of those things that's a gotcha, you know. So how do we nurture our children? Do we give them all the answers? Or do we teach them problem solving? You know? 
Do we give them problems and work with them to teach them how to solve them? Or do we get so impatient we just solve the problem for them? You know? Too often we give our children answers to remember rather than problems to solve. So, how can I qualify the critical success factor? Good solution. What's a good enough solution? How do you do that? Well, you have to select the correct solution, don't you? You better know the right problem. A lot of times people look at a problem and say, this is our problem. And they go and they solve it and it didn't change anything. What changes they realize they identified the wrong problem. So you really have to put a stake in the ground and know what your problem is. Then you look at the evidence. Remember last night we talked about evidence-based solutions. So we have to have the correct solution, right? And then we have to ensure that the solution is appropriate to the audience. We have to ensure that the solution is appropriate to the purpose of the project. You know, you might identify a problem, you might have a solution, but you might find out after working on it so long that if you solve it or not, it doesn't make a difference because the purpose of the project is what makes a difference. And that solution might not satisfy the purpose of the project. Think about that. Isn't that something? Ensure this, that the solution is appropriate to the purpose of the project. So you select the correct solution. Ensure that the solution is appropriate to the audience. Ensure that the solution is appropriate to the purpose of the project. You know, you this means that you have to know the people you're working with. You have to know what's appropriate for them, don't you? You have to know. You really have to know. You can't guess. You're there to help them. You assist them, right? So you really should get in touch. Ah, that's good iced tea. And you should really get the idea that what you want and they want is the same thing. So you both have to define the purpose of the project and it has to agree. And that's how you find out if the audience is getting a solution that's appropriate for them because it's got to be appropriate to the project that your audience is working on. All right? So, you have to prepare, don't you? None of this stuff is automatic. It takes thinking. It takes critique, critical analysis, synthesis. So, here's a question for you. How can you qualify the critical success factors called good enough? How do you know when something's good enough? What do you need to do to say that your CSR is good enough? Good enough for your team, good enough for the project, good enough for yourself. Well, you have to specify the CSF, right? Your critical success factor. You have to specify it. You have to communicate critical success factors 
that are real and attainable. You can't identify a CSF that is not real and attainable. And people do that all the time. Then you have to communicate the critical success factor that can be managed. And then you have to ensure that that CSF can be communicated by everyone on the team and that they understand it and they can acknowledge it and they can tell everybody else about it and they know everything there is to know about it. So that's what it means to specify your critical success factors. You could communicate, communicate, and ensure. Communicate that it's real and attainable. Communicate that it can be managed. And that everybody on the team can communicate about it. That's how you specify your critical success factor. Then you have to focus here on the CSFs, not the CFFs. Let me translate that for you. You focus here on the critical success factors, not the critical failure factors. They're not the same. This means that you ensure that the CFFs can be qualified by managers and team leaders. They can qualify these. They know what they are. They know the boundaries. And you can manage the boundaries. Define the critical success factors that are real, that overcome the weaknesses and bias of slogans. Do you know that? That a lot of solutions come to people by slogans? A certain problem will say, oh, I heard a slogan about that. I heard a solution. It's really a slogan. Do your own thing. Do the best you can do. Got to hang in there. You can do all three of what I just said, not get anywhere. You have to define your critical success factors that are real and that overcome the weaknesses and biases slogans. There's a lot of bias in organizations. We all know that. Not just prejudice, but bias about everything. Some people favor certain technologies over other ones because of bias. Some people favor certain solutions over other ones because of bias. Some people will even define pro problems wrong because of bias. Then you have to define a critical success factor that you can prove is really a CSF. Just because you say it is doesn't mean it is. You have to be able to demonstrate that. You have to give proof. You know, this is not based on faith. This is based on evidence. This is based on skill. This is based on knowledge and critique. If you cannot prove that a critical success factor is really a critical success factor, then it isn't, right? If you recommend to me that you have a critical success factor that's going to solve a certain problem, you have to prove it to me before you try and solve the problem, right? And then you do not identify the CSFs of the team. You do not over-identify them. Do not over-identify the CSFs of the team. You have to enable your colleagues to have the freedom to desire exceptional performance by defining 
CASFs that are really critical to achieving exceptional performance. You have yours, of course, but you need to hear what they think. They have an opinion. They have some ideas. Your colleagues are not there just to go along for the ride. They're there to help find a solution. They're working on this with you. You're working on this with them. It's collegial. So how can you qualify the critical success factor good solution? How can you qualify the CSF good solution? What would you do? Well, sure that the solution is timely. Right? You can get it done in time. That it makes sense. That it doesn't break the bank, right? That it doesn't take forever. And if it's too short, I'd be worried also. If it's something that somebody says we can do in 10 minutes, I'd double think about that. And then the solution, is it enduring or is it only temporary? You want a permanent fix, don't you? You want something that's not temporary. You want a solution that works now and forever. It's got to endure. That means it has to survive many conditions, many trials, many tests. No? And then you have to ask why a lot. Why is this so? Why is this not so? In other words, you inquire into the why of things. The reason you do this is it helps you discover why. It helps you discover how. The why of things helps you discover how of things. How is this so? Why is this the answer? How is this the answer? How does that make sense? You know? That's what I'm talking about here. The hell of things and the why of things are really related. So you inquire into the why of things and to discover the hell of things. Why does this work? Because it works this way, that's how it works. You get it? So insight 13. It isn't that they cannot find the solution. It is that they cannot see the problem. That's kind of what I've been talking about. G.K. Chesterton said that. One of my favorite persons. He's my second cousin twice removed. And so are you. It isn't that they cannot find the solution. It is that they cannot see the problem. That's the problem. You get the solution and you look back and say, wow, that's so interesting, but gee, that doesn't help us because that's really not our problem. The way I like to put it is this way. Many people are experts at problem solving. Unfortunately, they are good at solving the wrong problems. Problem solving begins with seeing the right problem and going from there. And many people are very good at solving the wrong problems. I've seen it. I've been on teams where the team was working really hard. And lo and behold, if we didn't solve a problem that did not exist, 
Remember, there's this famous pianist that always had a comedy routine. As he got older in his career, he played the piano. He was a classical pianist. His name is Victor Borg. Remember him? He talked about his great uncle, the research doctor. He created medicines for uh, cures for diseases they hadn't discovered yet. Right? This is a great, great doctor. You know, so brilliant. He had all these cures. He had a list of all these cures. And he'd tell, Victor, come here. Look at this. I just got this cure. I got that cure. And Victor would say, for what disease? I don't know. We haven't discovered the disease yet that can benefit from that cure. That's kind of like coming up with the wrong problem statement, isn't it? Then you solve it. Then you look at it and you know, wow, that ain't the problem, folks. And we just solved it. So we'll keep a record of this in case that problem ever shows up. If so, we can solve it then. But right now, we still have to come up with the problem definition, problem statement, so we can solve it. Wow, it'd be really great if we could solve that problem. So, running away from a problem does not create a solution, but it leaves you with nothing. Let me tell you that fact again. We all know this. Running away from a problem does not create a solution, but leaves you with nothing. Each problem that I solved became a rule, which served afterwards to solve other problems. Rene Descartes said that. So he's kind of Smart because he's creating evidence-based solutions. Each problem that I solved, he's got a solution, became a rule which served afterwards to solve other problems. Isn't that what I've been talking about? I talked about it yesterday. I talked about the importance of evidence-based solutions. I have gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of evidence-based solutions I've developed for Problems that I've solved over the years or my team has solved over the years around the world in many different cultures. A lot of people know a lot about problem solving that happens to be absolutely wrong. One of my anomalies in life is I've discovered some rules about problem solving that work really well and that are true and, no, and a lot of people haven't discovered those insights. Running away from a problem does not create a solution, but it leaves you with nothing. And each problem that I solved became a rule, was served afterwards to solve other problems. Rene Descartes. Now you know they're really getting big in Europe. They have evidence-based solutions. I think the School of Denmark is starting to teach all their children. They did a couple of years ago. Made a decision to teach evidence-based solutions. Evidence-based problem solving. I've been working on this since the 1960s. You know? And uh, you will be surprised, maybe you won't, at how many people make the same mistakes regularly. And some people make the same mistake all the time. They keep making the same mistakes. You know? 
It's like they don't learn from their own experience. They don't have a clue. They don't think. I know some people, I have met them, who really do not care that they're not very intelligent. And they will tell you that. Mafi muscula. Do you speak Arabic? That means no problem, no problem. Don't bring me a problem. Mafi muscula. Don't, don't want to know. Just want to be at peace. It's not that they run from problems. They don't want to see them. They ignore them. And it actually, uh, when I say here, fact, running away from a problem does not create a solution, but it leaves you with nothing. But it does leave you with something, right? It leaves you with the problem you're running away from, and that can create a bigger problem. So it becomes a growth industry creating problems. What do you do for a living, Mr. Smith? Uh, I create problems. Uh, I do that because I'm very good at ignoring problems and running from problems. Yeah. I'm not into the solution thing because you have to think. I'd rather not think. I'm tired of thinking. So I do a lot of different things like I get away from a problem as soon as it comes up. I don't need to deal with it. So mafi muscula. Don't bring me any problem. No problem. No problem, please. All right. They weren't smart enough like Rene Descartes to realize they can develop a reservoir of solutions and use them. All right. Yes. Each problem that I solved became a rule which served afterwards to solve other problems. You know, I just finished a book. In the book, I talked about Newkirk's rule number 51. I got a bunch of rules. I call it Newkirk's laws. I cr these laws, here Descartes calls them a rule. I became, they became a rule. Well, I have a lot of laws. I'll give you an example. Newkirk's law number 375,000. When you're really, really, really thirsty, you should really, really drink water. Yeah. Then if you don't have water available, you should drink something else. Obvious, right? But some people will complain to me, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty, Ray. Dr. Ray, I'm so thirsty. Why don't you get something to drink? Ah, oh, that's a good idea. I would never thought of that. You know? You see that one? Ray, it's time for lunch. Well, I'm not going to go to lunch right now. Why? I'm not hungry. What? You only eat when you get hungry? Well, that's what a great idea. Excuse me. That really happened. I'm not making this up. I've had these experiences. I was at a seminar one time, an educational seminar in the San Francisco Bay Area, an academic conference, part of one of my PhD programs. And everybody was going to the cafeteria. It was lunchtime after all. But I wasn't going. And some of the classmates said to me, hey, some of my colleagues, educational colleagues, right? said to me, Ray, let's go to lunch now. It's time to go to lunch. Aren't you going to lunch? I said, no, not really. Why? Why are you skipping lunch? Oh, I'll eat it later. I'm not hungry now. They were shocked. This lady said to me, gee, that's a great idea. Only eat when you get hungry. Wow. To me, <laughs> why would you eat if you're not hungry? You know? It's a distraction, isn't it?
It's a real distraction to eat when you're not hungry. I don't mean I don't uh, eat in between meals. Excuse me. I was up all night. So my voice is a little weak today. All right. That's better. So I do eat a little bit in between meals, but not a lot. And, uh, but um, I'm one of those strange guys that uh, if I didn't have to eat, I probably wouldn't. You know, I normally don't overeat. You know, so I come up with these rules because I've learned that they really work well. And I share them as insight. Newkirk's Law, number 357,000. Just kidding. It's probably 358,000. Just kidding. But you get the idea. It's a good habit to cultivate, to do what Rene Descartes did. Remember your solutions. Remember the problems that you solved in your life. You learn from that. That becomes your experience. You know, it's, it's very important solving problems. Some people are so great at problem creation. Have you ever been with them? My goodness gracious. They can you know, they have trouble boiling water. Right? They'll put their water on, they're going, <laughs> excuse me, they're going to boil, boil water. They want to clean something with really hot water. And three hours later, they look and there's no more water left. It had all evaporated because they really wanted to make sure the water was really hot. You know, they do amazing things. They scorch their pots, right? But the insight I would like to share with you is Take your problem-solving skills seriously. The solutions that you come up with, keep a record of them. If you go back to the 1960s, and many of you weren't here, you can't do that. I learned already the value of remembering the solutions I came up with for problems or my teams came up with, or the teams I was part of came up with. I documented all that stuff. You know? And I learned from it. And I learned the value of it. I think I told you that story where I had a wonderful, wonderful manager. And I had come up with a methodology and the engineering company wanted to buy it. And they offered me, uh, this is my gosh, back around 1970. For something like that, they offered me $25,000, which back then was a lot of money. I was going to college. They offered me about $25,000 to buy the rights to my methodology. And my friend said to me, Ray, I know that sounds like good money, but if it's worth that to them, it's worth a lot more to them when they use it. I certainly wouldn't sell it. That's where I got the idea of licensing stuff. Every contract ever did, I licensed the use of my material, and I kept my material. And the other thing I found out is certain problems always occur in other places. It's unlikely that you will see a certain problem only once in your life. And the solution that you come up with will work more than once. It's really worth understanding that the contributions you make to your company, 
in a way, are endless. Because wherever you are, when you see that problem, that solution will still be valid to an extent. Maybe a little bit of modification, maybe not. But it gets you into the problem so you can dissect it and improve things and improve the solution. Your new knowledge you can add to the old knowledge. You know, what I tell people on our database, I want to access our database of solutions. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. See if you can make the solution better than we did. Although the solution we're giving you will solve your problem quickly and effectively. If you can make it better, that's even better. But be at it. Do the best you can. You know? So, it's worth thinking about. I call them evidence-based solutions. I call them rapid solutions on demand. I call them applied intuitive solutions. You know? Intelligent solutions on demand. I've had so many names for my products over the years because it was right for each one of those times. You know? And you live in the same world I do. Problem-solving leaders have one thing in common. A faith that there's always a better way. Now think about that. We solve a problem. It's good enough to solve the problem. But we know. We believe. That there's always a better way. Gerald M. Weinberg said this. One of my favorite people. Jerry Weinberg. The psychology, the computer programmer guy. Problem solving leaders have one thing in common. A faith that there's always a better way. Think about yourself. When you really get into it and you're solving problems and you solve it, you still feel like you do it better. You could do it better, but you just ran out of time and it works. And it will work ad infinitum, huh? Towards infinity. That's forever, right? Sekalah, sekalorum. Through the ages of the ages and the ages of the ages. For those of you who are not Latin masters. Okay? So remember what Jerry Weinberg had to say. Problem solving leaders have one thing in common. A faith. There's that word again. Faith. That there is always a better way. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. I agree with all that. You know? When I was uh, first starting out uh, in operating systems, I worked for a company, and I was the supervisor of the computer lab for updating our operating systems for the computers. We were doing mid-range computers, mid-frames, medium-sized computers, not the very large-scale computer systems, and certainly no PCs. They weren't even PCs back then. So they're um, mid-range computers, and we had operating systems for those, all kinds of operating systems. I was a supervisor of the lab that developed this. 
and updated it and made sure that all the customers got updates on their systems, right? And we'd solve a problem and it would work, but I always felt we could do better, but it was good enough for us to stop. But always in the back of my mind, I knew that somebody could find a better solution if we only knew them, but our solution was worked, it was good, and, you know, the world is back different then. Quite back then, it's quite different. I'll give you an example. You got in, say, a Harris Computer Systems Division, computer system with their operating system. They had their own. And you were a customer, and you got Harris. And when we upgraded or updated the operating system, you got it free. I was in charge of the department that sent out updates on all the software that we developed. You didn't have to pay for it. It was in your licensing agreement when you bought the system. If you needed to be trained, we trained you for free because it was our responsibility to make sure that you're a customer. You can use our system. You knew how to use it to the best of your ability. You licensed this stuff. You didn't have to pay to use it. It was our job to help you, right? So what do we got today? Well, let's see, you license the software, right? And you get into Oracle system, or you go out and get Cisco routers, do all this stuff, next thing you got is what? You have to be trained to use it, right? If they update it, they have their versions, right? Version 10, version 11, you pay for all the upgrades. And then you have to be trained, and then you have to be certified, and that costs thousands of dollars. What a racket today. They have determined how to separate a man and his dollar, or a woman or a dollar, better than Disney. When you go to Disney World, right? They nickel and dime you to death. They used to be, but now they dollar and ten dollar you to death. So any place I ever went were about a five dollar ice cream bar, right? Shaped like Mickey Mouse. Five bucks for that thing. That was years ago. Should be a law against that, right? Well, you have a good time anyway, right? And you do it once in a lifetime for most people. But the point I'm getting at is the world has changed so much. It's gotten so pecuniary. You know, about money, making money. And it's okay. Our company makes money. We're in business to make a profit. If my company doesn't make a good profit, I'm not doing a good job. But we want to be fair about it. And there's a lot we don't charge for. When we were consulting, my gosh, we charged by the hour. That included everything. Some of these competitors of ours, while they wanted to copy something for you, you needed to have an extra copy of a deliverable. They charge you so much per sheet, extra. They might give you a one free piece of paper. or the, They just had so many ways to separate their clients from their money. I couldn't get over it. The overhead of managing the billing system alone must have been fantastic. You see? You solve one problem, you create 10 more. Think about the old days. You license a system and everything that's affiliated with that system, you've licensed at the same time. That includes training. That includes certifications. Back then, they didn't call it that, though. It, it, uh, updates, enhancements, new releases. A lot of wonderful stuff was included in the price. 
Now they've done it in such a way that uh, they call it a new product. Well, they release nine. Windows 9, Windows 10, Windows 11. Well, we're on Windows 11, right? It's supposed to be a kind of a radically new system. But they always say that. And you always have common kernels you start with. And you update those. The other thing to think about is the reason problem solving is so important. Is you see how much programming runs this world? Think about it. If you're a cybersecurity person and you really get into your job in cybersecurity, look at all the places where you have intrusions. It's unbelievable how much programming runs this world. Millions and millions and millions of lines of code. You can't even test it all adequately. Not enough time. You need supercomputers. You need to be really fast. You know, it's extremely complex. I was watching a demo the other day of this robot at Google that they're saying is self-reflectively aware. Probably it is not. All right. It was programmed to respond certain ways to certain contingencies of thinking. All right. It's probably not self-programming yet. I don't know. They haven't shared it with me. But the point I'm trying to get at, trying to make with you, is there's more problems to solve than ever. Because there's more programs than ever. More software, more hardware than ever. I mentioned the other day one of my podcasts about kids. They're so connected. They te text each other when they're, even when they're walking together. And all that takes code. All that takes programming. Wow. It's just so much of it. Everywhere you go, and it's increasing every day by millions and millions of lines of code. We have to be careful. And the best way to be careful is to be great problem solvers. we got to be doing that. You know, it's uh, it, it blows my mind. And I've been in this business. I wrote my first program in 1962. That's, uh, what, 20 years ago? Let's see, this is uh, hmm, 2022. Hmm. Seems just like yesterday I was doing that. But it isn't. It's a while ago. And you know, it has gotten so much more complex. A lot of things fail. I mean, we had the Y2K scare, you know, that cost people millions and millions of dollars. We have to get it right. We have to be careful with the decisions we make. Our government is totally disconnected from a lot of this stuff because it's over their heads. And it's always after the fact when they do anything. You know. But folks, problem solving leaders have one thing in common. A faith that there's always a better way. Jerry is right. Everybody I've ever met met and talk to when we're doing problem solving. They were never fully happy with their solutions. They would say things like, there's got to be a better way, and there will be a better way will come along. And the thing that I find so refreshing is a lot of times the better way is really simpler, less complex, like you'd say. Wow, why didn't I think of that? Because it's too simple. Simplify.
Simplify. Well, there's really a lot of value in simplification, you know. And there are some people that can look at something complex and they'll go right at the heart of it and know how to simplify it. Oh, you don't need that. You don't need that. Just get rid of this. Just do this, this, and put it together this way, and there you go. You got the same thing, same functionality. You got rid of 10,000 lines of code. It's simpler, and you have less problems. Those people are very valuable, right? They have a certain taste, savoir faire, you know, a certain uh, feeling for the environment, for the situation. They love what they do. You know, think about doctors. The thing that I think about in healthcare is that they solve solutions by prescription. Everything is medication. Everything's medication. Before there were so many drugs that you could take, doctors actually treated you different ways. They actually treated you. They actually did things or gave you exercises or told you about diet. They're, they're totally practice of medicine was really different than it is today. Today, what you're doing is that a lot of doctors are just dispensers of the pharmaco the pharma business. You know the relationship between them. I'm not saying we don't need pharma. Of course we do. I'm not saying we don't need doctors who distribute drugs. I should say pharma. Of course we do. But I think they should practice medicine a little bit differently. I think they should really get involved with the patient. So many doctors today, it's just a matter of numbers. You get in, you got to get out. Does that create problems? No. I had my eyes examined recently. I go in there, and this woman is in such a hurry because I went into the office there. It was a company that specialized, of course, uh, prescriptions for eyes. And I go in there. I could not get over the crowd, first of all. Wow. There were a lot of people in the waiting room. I didn't like that. You know, but I had to wait, and I go in. They don't see me on time. And so I go in there, and this person was in a hurry. The person was not in a good mood because this person was overwhelmed because she was working for a business, and her requirement was to get through as many people as she could. And I've done this a lot. I know I've had my eyes examined a lot every year, you know, and I know what's a good examination from a bad one. This is really not, this is, this is a mixed, this, the woman was not happy. She was under a lot of pressure. She would look at the crowd. There were still dozens of people to see. And everyone was like that. So they're making money head over fist, you would think, depends on their business operations. But this poor doctor was obviously under the gun to see as many patients as she can. It was totally impersonal. I had to break uh, the atmosphere by telling some jokes so I could get her laughing. You know, I was able to do that. Didn't be able to talk. Up to that, it was just boom, 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 boom. Didn't even remember my name, know who I was. Totally impersonal, huh? Is that modern healthcare? The other thing I'll tell you that I noticed is that when you get older and you age, they treat you differently. I had one doctor sit down and say to me, well, Ray, you have a fatal illness. I said, what? What's that? Old age. You're not going to get any younger. 
It's eventually going to lead to your end. There's nothing we can do about it. So you just take care of yourself. I see you're on no medication. How is that possible? What? Because I'm healthy. Well, is there anything I can give you? Do you need anything to feel better? I mean, I'm not making this up, folks. I said, no, I'm okay. I don't really need anything. I, I sleep okay. I get my three to four hours sleep a night and uh, I have good dreams. I'm doing a lot of work. I just wrote my 51st book. I'm having I'm a great time and life's just too short. Not enough time. But, Doc, none of us know when our last day is. I hope you're still here for you to see me next year. You know, that's the kind of way it went. If I was 20 years younger, it would have been totally different. You know, so you look at life and it's different. And the thing you realize that life is about solving problems. It's the best you can and get good at it and get better at it your whole life. Right? So guess what? Our time is up on episode 13. You're right. You guessed right. So thank you for joining me on this discussion about achieving exceptional performance. I will be back with episode 14 next week. This is Dr. Raymond Allen Newkirk. CEO and founder of Systems Management Institute in Orlando, Florida. Phone number is 407-864-7756. I answer my own phone. The people that work around me are too busy to answer my calls for me. My email, if you ever want to give me a line or make a request or tell me what you'd like to talk about, is rnewkirk, that's R-N-E-W-K-I-R-K, at S-M-I-L-C dot info. It's not smile. It's not S-M-I-L-E. It's S-M-I-L-C. That stands for Systems Management Institute Learning Center, folks. My webpage is www. Do you, know, do you remember what www stands for? World wide web like that isn't that amazing they thought of that www.smirsp.com and what's our model what do you need to do folks what do i need to do go forever forward never backward right and that makes life all the more rewarding for listening and continue with this discussion soon and thank you for joining us this is ray newkirk over and out